You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Connection with our sermon this morning, we have two readings, one from the Old Testament. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Describes the events at Mount Sinai as the people of Israel came there and as the Lord God himself met his people there before he gave them his law. That occurs in chapter 20. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set them, set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speak with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal... He shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up to the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke, because the Lord descended on it in fire. The Lord, the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. 
So Moses went down to the people and told them. Thus far, our reading from the Old Testament. Let's then turn to the New Testament, to Romans chapter 5. We'll read the verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom He has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Our text this morning is Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Fire goes before Him and consumes His foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim His righteousness, and all the people see His glory. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols, worship Him, all you gods. Zion hears and rejoices, and the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are the Most High over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for He guards the lives of His faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is shed upon the righteous, and joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise His holy name. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what you believe in will work itself out in what you do. What you believe in affects greatly the things that you do. Your convictions have a way of working themselves out into reality in what you do. This past week, the leader of Her Majesty's Opposition, Canada, Jack Layton passed away. Agree with him or not, you can see in his life and the things that he pursued what he believed in. His beliefs worked themselves out in his actions. He believed in the rights and priorities of workers, of those on the sidelines of society, and his political career was formed around that conviction. 
He also believed, it seems, that compromise was an effective tool to getting what you want, to achieve your goals. And that belief also worked itself out. And this principle works itself out in all of our lives. That was just one example. We might consider ourselves perhaps what we give to charities. How you're going to respond to a, a, a pledge or a request for a donation from a charity. If you believe that charity to be good, if you believe with the same things that that charity believes in, then you're more likely to donate. Your convictions will work themselves out in your actions. If you don't, then you won't. Now this belief and response dynamic is very present in Psalm 97. And it starts with the very first line there, the Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Since the Lord reigns, let the earth be glad. And you see this going on throughout the whole psalm as well. Zion hears and rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad, verse 8. Because you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You've exalted, you are exalted far above all gods. Because God is king, his people, in fact, the whole world, rejoices. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. Because God reigns, we see His ever-present glory all around us. Because God reigns, false gods are failures. Because God reigns, His people, believers, those who affirm the truth of His kingship, find joy and comfort. That's how we're going to divide our sermon this morning. God reigns, let the earth be glad. God's kingship accounts for His ever-present glory, the failure of false gods, and the joy and comfort of believers. Since God reigns, His glory is all around. God's kingship is very, very closely connected with His creation. This follows a rule that we recognize today. If you make it, You own it. An artist makes something, it's theirs. They own it. So it is with God. God made the world and everything in it. He owns it. This is one of the reasons why there's a a particular curriculum or a, a suggested method of evangelism that's called two ways to live. Two ways to live. It's a very effective means of presenting the gospel to someone who doesn't know it. And it's very effective because it starts right here. God made the world. He owns it. God made you. He owns you. He has rights over you. No matter who the person, what the circumstances of their lives are, where they're born, what they believe, there's one unmistakable truth about them. And that is that God made them. God 
made you. Therefore, God has rightful ownership over you. God is king. And so too of all His creation. God is the king of all creation. We we heard about that last week in Psalm 95. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth. The mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands form the dry land. And not only that, but all that God has created reflects His glory. Psalm 19, the spacious heavens declare God's glory everywhere. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, for since the creation of the world... Since God created the world, His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that man, men are without excuse. So God the Creator reigns over His creation, and that creation displays the glory of its Creator. And this psalm, Psalm 97, speaks about that. The Creator... His kingship and His glory. And it's universal in its scope. Look at the psalm with me. Verse 1, The Lord reigns. Let the earth, the whole earth, be glad. Verse 3, Fire goes before Him and consumes His foes on every side. Verse 4, His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. Verse 5, The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Who? Before the Lord of all the earth. Verse 6, The heavens proclaim His righteousness, and all peoples see His glory. Verse 9, For you, O Lord, are the Most High over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. The universal witness of God's kingship and God's glory work together. God reigns. So His glory is everywhere. As well, God's universally present glory is a testimony to His universal kingship. All these powerful forces that we normally attribute to nature, the clouds and thick darkness, the consuming fire, the lightning, the shaking mountains, are all testimonies to God's universal sovereign, and exclusive kingship. Since it's all here, God reigns. But it seems, as much as the the writer of this psalm is, is acknowledging that fact, that the whole creation displays God's glory, it seems like the psalmist is actually working on two levels here. There's this universal aspect of God's glory and His kingship. But all of these statements from verses 2 through 5, they they resonate with one specific experience in Israel's history. Namely, the giving of the law at Sinai. It's quite striking if you compare Psalm 97 with Exodus 19. Let's do that for a moment. Exodus 19, if you want to look it up, it's page 116 of your pew Bibles. Keep your finger at Psalm 97, and we'll read them back and forth. 
Psalm 97 verse 2 says, Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And then turn to Exodus 19 verse 9, where the Lord says to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. We turn back to verse 3 in Psalm 97. Fire goes before him and consumes his enemies on every side. And we turn to Exodus 19 at verse 18. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. And we turn back to verse 4 of Psalm 97. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. Exodus 19 at verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Verse 5. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. Exodus 19 again, verse 18. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. The psalmist, in speaking of God's ever-present glory and majesty in creation, is having us, is drawing us back to this one moment in Israel's history in Exodus 19. Well, clear connection, you might ask, you might say. But you might ask, what does this have to do with God's universal kingship? What does God's reign over the whole world have to do with the giving of His law to a relatively small nation in the middle of a dry and sparsely populated Sinai Peninsula at the bottom of a mountain? Well, it was in God's law, it was in that moment that God established Himself with His people as the one true God. While His glory was so obviously present there at the mountain, God inscribed into stones the enduring reality of His eternal kingship. Isn't that what He inscribed into those stones? Isn't that what's present in God's law? That the Lord our God is King. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. He's king everywhere. His creation speaks of his power, of the creation speaks of its creator, displays his glory, shows his kingship. But not everyone recognizes His glory. Since God reigns, false gods are failures. And false gods makes us realize that not everyone is worshiping the true God. In verse 7, the psalm turns. Although the Lord's glory is present through the whole world, the whole world does not recognize His glory. The reality then, in the time that this psalm was written, as now, 
is that many don't recognize God's glory. And to not recognize the glory, the power and kingship of God, is to serve idols. To not worship God is necessarily to serve idols. In the days of the Israelites, there were many so-called gods, and the ways to worship them was by means of images, little statues. You see, what happens when Israelites or anyone else begins to serve idols is they begin to get tunnel vision. You start to worship something that's very small, obviously. A little idol that you can put on your mantle at home. Or maybe a statue, a six-foot statue that you can have in your temple. Even if it's a 50-foot or a 100-foot statue, it's still pretty small. Its glory is not present everywhere in the world. And so your vision starts to get smaller. You lose sight of the big things, and the small things become both frightening and possibly saving. The lightning is frightening because you can't see beyond it. And so you assume maybe you should serve the lightning. Or for us it happens... When we worship the idol of wealth or material prosperity, we lose sight of the bigger things. We lose sight of of what's important in life. We lose sight of who is in control of our life. And we start to think that more money will help us. Will help us get through this. It will deal with this problem that we have. So we desire to have it. We get tunnel vision. We get small. We think in terms of small problems and small solutions. And by the way, if you want to discover what idols, what false gods are pulling at your heartstrings, then consider this statement. How would you fill out this statement? If only I had blank, then I would have comfort and joy. If only I had money, a wife, a husband, some free time, power, then I would have more comfort and more joy. That's what happens. We get small vision. We want a particular thing. We think that's going to bring us comfort and joy. But the irony is, and that Psalm 97 points out, is that all who worship images, all who worship false gods are put to shame. It's comfort and joy that we're seeking to get out of it, but all we get is shame. You don't get what you long for. The very purpose of that idol is to get more comfort and joy, but it all turns to nothing because the God is nothing. Only God reigns. And only God dispenses comfort and joy. True comfort and true joy. Those are, after all, qualities of His kingdom. Of His kingship. Only where God is the Father, where Christ is the Savior, and where the Spirit is Helper, only where the triune God is King, can true comfort 
and true joy be found. The application then is that we would not look deeply inward into all parts of our lives where we need to find comfort and joy. That's a path that's going to lead us into idolatry. If we're looking into our own lives, what's going to give me more comfort and joy? What am I missing that's going to make my life better? Then you'll have nothing. You'll have shame. But the answer instead of that is to get ourselves out of ourselves, to take off our blinders, to get rid of our tunnel vision, and to worship God. To look up and to see the big things of God, to adore God Himself. In raw irony here, the psalmist cries, Worship Him, all you gods. If you want to be something, you false god, then worship God. That's where meaning is. That's where comfort is. That's where joy is. That's why we need to have the universal kingship of God affirmed for us time and time again. That's why the Psalms are so full of it. God reigns. Yes, that's right. Let the earth be glad. God reigns. Let's pull off our blinders, open our eyes anew, and see the glory and the majesty of God all around us. In adoring God the King, that is where our comfort and joy are found. That brings us then to our last point. Since God reigns, His people find comfort and joy in Him. Recognizing and trusting in the sovereignty of God is the only way to find true comfort and true joy. Joy that lasts. Comfort that's for eternity. Now this is not something that only God's people can enjoy. As in you've got to first be in the club and then you can enjoy it. But anyone and everyone who recognizes and trusts the sovereignty of God will find joy and comfort in His ways. That's a call to all of you who do not recognize the sovereignty and kingship of God. You too need to open your eyes and see Him. Only in Him will you find joy. As King, we see God brings justice to bear on His enemies. And that brings comfort and joy for His people. God brings justice to bear on His enemies. That's certainly the background of this psalm. God present in in thunder and lightning. God bringing judgment upon the peoples. The peoples seeing His glory and being afraid at it. It's clear in verse 8, Zion hears and rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, O Lord, for you are the Most High. Can you imagine being one of God's people at the time of the flood? Or at the time of the Red Sea crossing? 
when they crossed from Egypt into the desert with the Egyptians close behind them and then God executing His judgment on the Egyptians and them all drowning in the Red Sea. Or can you imagine being the Israelites in the time of Hezekiah when the Assyrians are, are bearing down on them bringing certain defeat when suddenly, miraculously, the people of Israel are saved. They see the judgment of God on the Assyrians. Can you imagine what it must be must have been like for the people of Judah, the people in Zion at that time, to look out and see God executing His justice? Of course they were glad. God's judgment meant their salvation. God's people are filled with comfort and joy when God executes His justice. And we too can be filled with comfort and joy when we read those accounts in His Word. The accounts of God administering His justice. Because God has revealed them to us that we might learn about Him. That we might find comfort in Him. And that we might find protection under His everlasting arms. These are dramatic examples. The Old Testament is full of it. These dramatic examples of God saving His people by executing judgment. As dramatic as they are, those battles of the saints of the Old Testament are mere shadows. of The great battle that waged when God sent His own Son into the world. Strikingly, surprisingly, up to the point of of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, it seems like God's enemies are winning. How could this be? Hezekiah was spared and given 30 more years, but the king of the world doesn't come to rescue his own beloved son. But yet, on the cross, God defeated his enemies. On the cross, God executed His judgment while we were still enemies. Romans 5 says, Christ died for us. God defeated His enemies by turning against His own Son, by administering His justice against Him. Why? Because He was the only one who could endure it. Because He was the only one who didn't deserve it. Because He was the only one who finally and completely could bear the wrath of God against the sin of us who were His enemies because of our sin. And so God executing His judgment brings us joy and comfort. We see that in the cross of Jesus Christ. God's people find comfort in God executing His judgments. They also find comfort as God's people flee evil. We see that in verse 10. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for He guards the lives of His faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. I remember working at a a children's summer camp in Ontario and really being struck by the fact that the kids who were having the most miserable time there, very few did, but some of them did. They had a miserable time for one reason, and that's because they wouldn't 
follow the rules. They would just constantly work against those rules, and as a result, they made their time there at camp quite miserable. The rules exist to make the time there happy, joyful, safe. And if you don't follow the rules, then you won't be happy, joyful, or safe. The rules exist to give comfort and joy within them. And so it is with God's law. When we hate evil, when we follow the path of righteousness, then we experience joy and comfort. It's when we kick against the goads. It's when we fight against God and His laws that we experience so much pain. As you pursue righteousness, follow the path of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In Him, we discover what this really means for us. He pursued righteousness. He pursued obedience all the way to death. Now you say, that doesn't sound like a lot of joy and comfort. The Lord Jesus loved the Lord and He hated evil. This didn't lead to a superficial joy, a superficial comfort. Rather, it led Him, yes, to suffer and to die. But as He accomplished the great plan and purpose of God, in that He found rest in His Father's will. He certainly had comfort. And he certainly had joy, even as he experienced all that hardship while on this earth, even to the point of dying on a crucifix. After he had pursued righteousness to the point of death, God renewed his comfort and joy. He raised him from the dead. He recommitted his disciples. He raised him up to his right hand where he from the right hand of God, he can see God's plan working out through his great sacrifice, bringing sinners to repentance, changing lives, and filling his church with comfort and joy. When you pursue righteousness, when you flee evil, when you hate evil, when you fight against the wicked, look in faith to Jesus Christ and trust that the Father in heaven will bless you abundantly with eternal comfort and eternal joy. And finally, we see in verse 11 that as a result of the kingship of God, light is shown, sown, uh, shed on the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. We don't really get a, a reason and response thing here. just simply states the fact, light is shed on the righteous. Joy on the upright in heart. The psalmist just affirms the way that things are. Those who trust in God, those who worship the King, experience light and joy. Why? Because God reigns. Because God is God. Because God is a gracious God. And He loves to give good things to His people. And so he liberally sows joy and light. He's the Lord. The Lord. The compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. It pleases him to give good things to those whose allegiance is with him and his sovereign kingdom. 
And so, no wonder that the psalm ends like it does. Rejoice in the Lord, you are you who are righteous, and praise His holy name. Why? Because the Lord reigns. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.